This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility and listeners like you. From WMPG, I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we continue our series on hidden emotions. We're airing stories and conversations about guilt, loneliness, humiliation, and jealousy. This week is our last set of stories about guilt. In particular, the kind of guilt that is the hardest to confess, the kind that no one wants to admit to. In both of these two stories we'll be airing today, someone gets hurt, and so it's really easy to want to condemn the actions and deny that we would ever be like that ourselves. But instead of doing that, I invite you to try an experiment. Listen for a part of you that might be similar, and be as curious as you can about this part of yourself without judgment. The first story is from a friend I met during medical training almost 20 years ago. She's an incredibly warm and committed doctor, so telling this story took a lot of courage, and it's part of what I so admire about her. Here's Sarah. I'm Sarah from Chicago, and my guilt story uh, has to do with when I was in middle school. I was at a private school um, that was you know, a great academic school with a lot of kids of professors and professionals. It was a nice group of kids from a really nice group of families. And I think, you know, a lot of people look back on it fondly as like, there's no school as good as this school. And I think that, you know, there were a lot of great things that happened there. But there was this undercurrent of meanness. And it was a time before people really talked about bullying as a bad thing that we weren't really using that word. And, um, but in seventh grade, um, a friend, Carrie and I, uh, we started noticing that another friend named Annie seemed very eager to please us. She was the only girl in our group of friends who had divorced parents. And so it wasn't something we talked about. I just knew she lived with her mother and her siblings in an apartment and, um, you know, the rest of us mostly lived in houses with our, with our married parents and she would agree with things. So if I said something mean, she might just go along with it. And I think it, looking back, I think it's because she was trying to fit in. She had said mean things about Carrie to me and about me to Carrie. And we thought, oh, let's catch Annie saying these mean things and then get her to lie about it. And we, so we, we came up with a whole plan about how we were going to have, a phone conversation where we were both on the line and catch her saying something mean and catch her in a lie. And so we were at my house and I was on one line and Carrie was downstairs on, you know, on another receiver and we called Annie and Annie and I started talking and I said, you know, I'm so annoyed with Carrie. I, I really don't like her. What do you think? And then Annie said, yeah, I don't like Carrie either. And then Carrie said, you know, I'm on the phone. And Annie said, wait, no, I, you know, I didn't say that. I, I like you too. And, you know, so we caught her in this, um, you know, saying something mean and in a lie, which we had set up. And, you know, I think Carrie and I, we, we laughed and, you know, and said, Annie, we can't be your friend if you're going to say bad things about us to each other.
After that, there definitely was a change in the alignment of our friendships. And um, Annie actually became closer to just one or two of the other girls who stayed friends with her um, through ninth grade. She actually moved away after ninth grade. And I really wasn't friends with her anymore. But um, after she moved away, when I was in 10th grade, my parents got separated. And at that point, I had no friends who had divorced parents. I had one um, friend whose mother had died at the end of middle school and another friend whose father was dying in high school. And their experiences, to me, that, that seemed so much worse than what I was going through. So I really didn't have anyone to turn to. And I would sit at the back of classrooms crying and nobody noticed. But, you know, it's only really in looking back that I kind of tie those things together of being mean to the girl whose parents were divorced and then kind of going through the same thing and not having anywhere to turn myself. It's something I've thought about, you know, I felt guilty about it for, uh, for my whole life. And I've told, you know, I've told my kids that, you know, I was a nice kid, but I did some mean things and I, and I still think about it now. And I, and I, I think my, you know, my kids, I would like to think that they wouldn't do that because they know that, wow, you know, 20 or 30 years later, you can feel really bad about these things. And I still, and I still have guilt about it now. I'm 45. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for telling me that story. It's so hard to tell these stories that we feel don't reflect well on us. And um, I'm struck just as you ended about the kind of deterrent effect of guilt and how your hope that by telling your kids, you know, how how awful you feel and you still feel it 30 years later, that that might dissuade them. Um, do you think it would have dissuaded you if someone had said to you, like, you're going to feel horrible about this for decades. Don't do it. Well, it's an interesting question because you don't think about teenagers thinking, you know, beyond the moment. I mean, I would assume just knowing what I know about teenagers that no, that wouldn't probably work. But I do know with my kids, they can see that this is something that I'm ashamed of. And, you know, I always add, I really think I was a good kid. I think if, I mean, I, I'm curious to know. What do other people think from my class? What did they think I was like in middle school? And, um, you know, I would like to think people thought of me as a good kid. I'm sure teachers definitely thought I was a good kid. And my parents thought I was a good kid. But, you know, there was this side of me that I don't like. And I, um, you know, it's interesting to think, you know, I, you know, I became a doctor, you know, so, um, and I devoted my career to caring for patients who other people don't want to take care of, you know, to working with the most underserved patients. And I wonder how that fits in with, you know, I feel guilty about how I treated someone who was vulnerable when I was 13 years old. You know, I, I wonder about that too, because it speaks to how powerful guilt is. I know that's true for me, too. Things that I've done, you know, years ago, like 40 years ago that I've carried guilt for. I think there's still a part of me that's kind of trying to atone. <laughs> and when I look back, I can see that it shaped different decisions that I made. So I, I could imagine. I'm imagining it's maybe one strand of it. And I, I think it's really 
scary to think back again, because I fancy myself a good person. And um, it's scary to think back of some of those baser instincts that came out as a child and, and a, a good 13 year old girl can turn on another 13 year old girl and, uh, you know, with a friend and, and not really at the time. I don't think my conscience was saying, don't do this, which is so hard for me to fathom now. Well, you know how I think of that, actually, from a clinical standpoint, is that we are all, you know, multiple, we all have different sides of us. And that it really is possible to be a fundamentally good person, and then have one part of you that it maybe enjoyed the feeling of power. You know, as children, we have so little power in almost any area of our lives. And here was this chance where you got to sort of exercise power. And if that was part of the appeal of it, I'm curious, does that ring at all for you? I, no, I, I think that that definitely makes sense. Because again, it's this time where you're figuring out who you are and what you're capable of. And we did have the power to influence other kids because then we could go around saying, Annie's a liar. You know, she says bad things about other people, which of course is ridiculous because what were we doing? Um, and turn other people on her. Um, and and that did feel good for a while. Uh, but then when the, you know, when the friendships realigned and that kind of lasted into high school, that felt less good because even at that time I did, as I say, I fancied myself a good person and someone who everybody liked. Like that's always been important for me that everybody likes me. And, um, you know, and I think that there were other kids who I liked who probably at that point didn't really trust me or want to be my friend because they knew what I had done. One thing that really fascinates me about this story, Sarah, is that you and Carrie sense this girl's vulnerability and it actually draws you to sort of want to hurt her, which I think is is very common but extremely uncomfortable to talk about. So I want to just explore that for a minute with you. I think that often when we sense that someone is vulnerable in some way, it almost evokes a kind of meanness. I'm not saying they're responsible for it. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. But like I, I have this memory that I feel ashamed of, <laughs> guilty, of this man that I met who um, was a person who lived in my neighborhood briefly. And he had this incredibly sort of obsequious way of talking. Like he was just so much trying to please. And um, it drove me crazy. And I kind of wanted to slap him. <laughs> <laughs> it really drove me it it evoked this kind of angry retaliatory response in me that that I never slapped him but it was so irritating to me um and I actually was harsh to him anyway I'm not proud of it at all but I'm, I'm wondering if it's a similar phenomenon to what you and Carrie were responding to well it also reminds me now about there was a girl on our block so back when I was a kid, we used to play outside after school and into the evening, a, a bunch of different kids on our block. And there was one girl who she just didn't fit in. And, you know, all she wanted was for us to be nice to her. And it's like we picked up on that as a group and turned on her, which is so cruel. And um, but I think what I try to do with my kids when they say so and so so annoying, you know, this this girl's so annoying, this boy's so annoying. I say, well, let's think about why that is. What's going on in this kid's life that is making him or her behave this, this way? 
And I hope, you know, I say, you know, his mom's sick or school isn't as easy for him. And, you know, try to sort of see the bigger picture in a way, you know, I try to get my kids to do that in a way that I was not trying to do at all. I mean, I, it's only now that looking back, I remember that Annie was the person who had divorced parents. And, you know, wow, I wonder how that must have felt for her. Now I wonder that I really didn't think about that at the time. So I'm, I'm curious to ask, you know, since we can relieve guilt through apology in a way, have you apologized to Annie? Have, have you had a chance to talk to her about this? So, you know, after she moved away, you know, we really, even though we'd been friends for many years, you know, until seventh grade, we really didn't, we weren't in touch. Um, and then um, I actually, when, you know, when you ask people to tell their guilt stories, and I volunteered to tell this one, I did Google her, you know, I see that she lives outside of Boston. And, you know, we do have still a mutual friend who I could ask about her. And I, um, you know, and there, there are two or three other kids that I, who I wasn't nice to, a couple of them are my Facebook friends, and I make a big point of liking their status and saying, Oh, you've got a cute kid. But I haven't come out and apologized. And I'm so curious, are their memories the same as mine? Are these things that they, you know, was I a minor player in terms of being a bully? Or was I somebody who really traumatized some of these kids? And I don't know. And, um, and it does still weigh on me. And I haven't been brave enough to, um, you know, to be in touch with any of them specifically about, you know, apologizing for the way I might have bullied them when they were little. I wonder if you might find it incredibly freeing. Like, I think it really never is too late to apologize. I, I, and maybe it would actually finally relieve you of that guilt you have been carrying all this time. Um, I think you could very well be right. We could have a follow-up story. <laughs> After this conversation, I was a little concerned that I wasn't focused enough on Annie, the girl who was bullied was clearly the victim in this story. I did feel really awful for her. I imagine the pit in her stomach when she figures out that they've deliberately tricked her. This is really awful. But my emphasis in this conversation was on giving compassion to the bully, and I want to explain why. We all want bullying to stop, but condemning it doesn't actually do anything to reduce it. What I discovered as I remembered my own capacity for meanness is that I do it in response to something I can't stand in myself. Like when I feel I've sacrificed my dignity in an effort to please someone. When I've acted that way, I hate it. So perhaps bullying other people is just the outward sign of the way that we treat parts of ourselves. In which case, teaching kids self-compassion may be an antidote to bullying. Our next story is also a difficult one to tell. It's about something extremely common, but so hard to acknowledge. Here's Brian. My name is Brian. I live in South Carolina, and I am 52 years old. And my story really begins about four years ago. Uh, I was coming back from a business trip and returning to the woman that At the time, I really considered to be the love of my life. This was probably the most significant relationship that I had ever had and somebody that I um, was 
completely in love with in a way that I hadn't experienced before. But we had been having some problems, uh, specifically intimacy-wise, and um, over a period of time, I had really shut down emotionally, sexually, and probably some other ways as well, and um, didn't really know how to solve it. Um, I think I tried to talk about it, but it just never really found the right way to talk with my um, partner at the time about these issues. And we had said that, you know, when I got back from the trip that we were going to try to, you know, get things right and really connect in a healthy, intimate way that, you know, really worked for both of us. And I think, you know, I remember back now um, really starting to dread that encounter that we had both said that we were going to have. And um, and I, I, I felt in some way trapped and, you know, just really didn't know how to get out of this feeling of um, you know, just tremendous um, dread and, um, and fear that it wouldn't go right. And um, also underneath that, you know, having a real fear of her leaving, um, which had really been under the surface pretty much our entire relationship. I didn't realize at the time how powerful that underlying fear was. But so I'm coming back and before I went to her house, um, I made a choice. I made a choice to go to a um, massage parlor. And, you know, it was one of these places where, you know, there's possibility of something other than massage happening and yet you don't really know and but I did put myself in a position to have sexual contact with a woman other than uh, my partner and that's ultimately what happened and um, I think in that in that moment I just felt um, I don't know I felt I really felt just gripped by um, sadness and um, fear and shame and just this uncertainty about what was going to happen after that. And so I get to my girlfriend's house and we haven't seen each other in several days. And, um, you know, I was really exhausted uh, from the trip and, you know, I just said, I'm going to take a nap and um, and then, you know, we'll hang out and connect. And of course I was unable to sleep, but it was in that moment I said, you know, I'm going to come clean, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say what happened. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen after that, but, um, I, I told her, uh, kind of in fits and starts what happened. I didn't, you know, kind of come all out with it initially, but over the course of the evening, you know, it was pretty clear what had happened. And, um, you know, within 24 hours, uh, our relationship was over. This was really a deal breaker for her that I had crossed this line. And, you know, part of it is that she had really had, you know, a history of betrayal in her own life. And I knew this. And uh, you know, that's why this 
series of events was so devastating to both of us. Um, you know, knowing that she had been hurt before, had been betrayed, um, and now I'm in the role of the betrayer. So I think that for me, um, you know, hurting the person that I love the most and yet, you know, for whatever reason, this needed to happen. And um, although looking back, you know, and I wish I'd made a different choice or I wish that I had been able to go to her and say, you know, I'm in a lot of pain and um, this is why. And um, I have a lot of fear. And just to speak for my emotions, to speak for my experience and to say, I can't stay in this place. And, and you know, I want to know where you are, but I can't stay here. And something has to change or shift. And it just didn't happen. Brian, thank you so much for telling me that story. I feel like that takes a lot of courage to tell something like that. And I'm kind of curious, do you think that maybe every time someone has sexual contact outside of their relationship, it's because there's some some problem that they can't address directly, that there's some like thing that's so difficult to bring up or acknowledge that you have to sort of like generate a problem indirectly? Well, it, it certainly was in my case. I mean, I think there was so much that was not, that I wasn't able to express. And, you know, there's something, obviously something in me that's not either getting met or something that I'm not experiencing that, um, that I'm, that I'm going outside the relationship to either express or experience and, or, you know, or on some level, you know, it was the saboteur in me, you know, my choice really was like a grenade. It was a very, in some ways, a violent act or a violent decision because it, it threw this bomb into the relationship and, I felt like it did harm to her, and it also in some ways did harm to me. I also found myself wondering, you know, I was really touched by the dilemma that you were in. You know, you know that she has this history of betrayal. You try to, like, take on this sort of role of, you know, dun-da-da-da, being the man who would prove that all men could be good, you know. You take on this role of kind of being the redeemer of, of all men, which is, like, too big a burden, and I, I found myself wondering if there's this almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in that, like when we try to become the savior for our partner, if we're almost, if that almost dooms us to repeating the very wound that they're suffering from. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like a very short trip from redeemer, savior to betrayer, perpetrator. It's so humbling. It, it is, and it, and it just you know, it, it, it comes a point where it's sort of all you want is just to get out from underneath that burden. And, and that's when, you know, sometimes very reckless or even violent choices can be made. I think the feeling I'm having listening to is like, it's, we can't really be each other's savior. You know, you can't actually save someone else from their wounds. And maybe by trying it, like set you up in this terrible way that ended up burdening you too much. Yeah, I think, you know, looking back, I was, 
it was set up to fail from the beginning. You know, the moment I took on that role of Redeemer or Savior, it was doomed. It was just a matter of time before I was going to cash that in. And so it, it, was, it was not sustainable. It was something that became too much for me to carry. And yes, it's not even something that I can do anyway. All I can do is just be truthful about the pain or the burden that I carry and to say when it's too much and that I can't carry anymore. To me, that would be a much more honorable way to go about things is to say, I've been carrying this and I can't carry it anymore. And yeah. I don't really know how to not carry it. I just know I can't do it anymore. That to me is, I think what I take away from that whole experience is to be able to have that level of awareness and then also the willingness to, to say it when I'm there. So that's my, you know, I don't know if I'll ever be in a significant relationship again, but if I am, that's my intent is to be truthful about what I'm experiencing, even if it, you know, the other person does leave, you know, and, but all I have is really the truth of my experience. And, um, you know, the, the moment that I and unable to really carry that, the truth of my own experience, then I, on some, in some way I'm lost. And I think I became lost um, in that relationship and was really looking for a way out, uh, any way I could get out of underneath that uh, level of pain and burden that I, that I carried. Yeah. It seems like such a hard way to learn that, but I... I... I wish you so well in your next relationship, Brian, because it feels like that that courage, that new courage that you'll have to be so clear, I, I think it's going to serve. Yeah. And yeah. thank you. And, you know, my maybe the biggest lesson for me from that whole experience is that I have the ability to make to make it emotionally safe for me in a relationship and that it's you know, that's my job is to figure out how to make it emotionally safe. And if I can't do that in that particular relationship, then maybe that's not the right relationship for me. But that's probably the biggest thing that I, I bring out of them. Yeah. Brian, thank you so much for being willing to share this story. I know you're so not alone in that. And uh, I really appreciate your generosity. Thank you, Anne. I realized in retrospect that we didn't talk much about guilt during this conversation. Although I suspect that like me, you could feel it in every word from Brian, in his earnest attempt to take responsibility and own it as a choice that he'd made. As we close these four shows on guilt, I think maybe the most exciting thing I learned was from Harant Kachadurian, the Stanford professor I interviewed two weeks ago. He says that if you acknowledge to yourself what you've done, apologize wholeheartedly, listen to the hurt, offer to make it right, and agree never to do it again, you're entitled to stop feeling guilty. You've done all a person can do. 
My hope for both Sarah and Brian is if they get to have that. Because they've both been carrying this guilt around for such a long time and have such remorse for having hurt someone. Maybe next year we'll do a new series on apologies. How we choose to make them, how they can go wrong, and how great it is when they go really well. Next week, we'll be turning to the topic of jealousy. We'll be airing two stories and conversations, exploring the unexpected clues that jealousy can give us about our own desires. If you like the show and want to hear more of our stories on the emotions that we hide, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com and listen to any of our past shows. While you're there, please leave a comment and subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And if you want to be in touch with me, please email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E at safespaceradio.com. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely. Speak Freely.